Welcome to a special series on the Acquisition Talk podcast that gives you an audiobook tour of my research project titled Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to I'm Eric Lofgren of the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. You can find this book for free and over 1,300 blog posts on my website, acquisitiontalk.com. The planning, programming, budgeting system relies on predicting the cost, schedule, and performance of future technologies before programs start. Thus, it relies on using historical data to drive future action. That means PBB has a bias for incremental change to legacy programs. Yet this safe approach, by pushing existing designs past their limits, invites cost and technical challenges. Unintuitively, it is the new technological paradigms that open up opportunities for 10, 100, or 1,000-fold returns. Consider the modern military force structure. Many major programs today are basically recapping systems that were started in the 1950s or before. The Navy's current top priority, the Columbia-class submarine, is an incremental improvement to the fleet ballistic missile submarine from the 1950s that can launch nuclear ballistic missiles from a nuclear submarine. The Air Force's ground-based strategic deterrent is a recap of the intercontinental ballistic missile. Dominant technologies from satellite imagery, jet engines, radar, infrared search and track, Aegis missile defense, precision munitions, automated gunnery, cruise missiles, sonar, and even hypersonic vehicles were all technologies adopted prior to the PBB. Mainstay aircraft developed in the 1950s that still fly today include the B-52, the U-2, and the C-130. More modern elements like night vision, stealth aircraft, fly-by-wire, the internet, thrust vectoring, the global positioning satellites, and active armor protection were adopted irregularly outside the regular PBB system or from international developments. Unmanned aerial vehicles, for example, were adopted by the Central Intelligence Agency and forced upon the Air Force. In this episode of Program to Fail, we dive into the defense innovation process and compare it to processes in Europe and the Soviet Union. A case study for the F-16 and the F-18 aircraft is used to demonstrate how difficult injecting innovation can be due to rigidities of systems analysis, program budgeting, and consensus-based decisions. After a burst of military innovation in World War II and the decade after, the pace of new ideas in weapons technologies seemed to slow down. By the late 1950s, some, some circles thought that nuclear warfare reached a point that no further advance could break the stalemate between the United States and the Soviet Union. They whispered of a technological plateau. On May 12, 1960, Senator Thomas Dodd called attention to the fallacy of the ultimate technological plateau. He urged continued devotion to advancing technology. 
While at first the technological plateau meant that it was not economically feasible to seek defense from, or something more terrible than, nuclear weapons, certain quarters misinterpreted the viewpoint. They believed that scientific understanding itself had reached a plateau. For example, Representative Melvin Price, chairman of important subcommittees on research and development, warned that government research program was, quote, entering a leveling off period, a plateau in the total dimensions, end quote. In June 1965, Senator Henry Jackson asked for comment on the technological plateau. He defined the term to be, quote, the sense that no major breakthrough, quantum advances, and military technology are now in sight. General Thomas White replied that, quote, There is no reason to think that a curve of advancement, such as we can trace today, is suddenly going to level off. We didn't dream anybody was going to be floating in space hitched to an umbilical cord even five years ago, end quote. Nobel Prize-winning physicist Walter Britton seconded the opinion. He observed how, quote, Past experience shows that whenever one thinks he understands everything, then is just the time unexpected new understanding is most likely to occur. End quote. Britain argued that the error of a technological plateau had been repeated many times before. He quoted the famous 19th century physicist Ernest Mach, who had observed the same phenomenon before him. Mach wrote how, quote, the French encyclopedists of the 18th century imagined that they were not far from a final explanation of the world by physical and mechanical principles. Laplace even considered a mind competent to foretell the progress of nature for all eternity, if but the masses and their velocities were given. Mach had been dealing with a similar argument towards the end of the 19th century, and yet, for everyone in the congressional hearing decades later, it was obvious that revolutionary discoveries were right around the corner. Claims of a complete description of nature and perfect predictions based on them sounded naive at best. Despite pronouncements that military technology was not slowing down, by the start of the 1970s, it started to seem that way. For Frederick Scherer, it became an obvious historical trend that the technological revolutions in weapon systems concepts were largely concentrated in the 1940s and the 1950s. There are some exceptions, to be sure, but they are not nearly so prominent in the 1960s. Scher explained that the second-generation programs of the 1960s seemed a disappointment. They tackled small but stubborn technical problems that were left over. Where was the new generation of technologies, many wondered, that could rival radars, missiles, jet engines, transistors, and nuclear power? Writing in Foreign Affairs, Hanson Baldwin stated that, quote, There appears to have been, in the first half of the 1960s, a definite reduction, as compared to the 1950s to 60s period, in the evolution and production of weapon systems. End quote. Believing that military technology reached a plateau, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara pushed for a different kind of innovation strategy from the freewheeling of the 1950s. It focused on risk reduction through analysis without experimental effort associated with concurrency, technological leaps, and soaring costs. It meant a higher justification barrier for projects to receive funding. It required perfection on paper before contract effort could start. Not only did McNamara curtail new programs, over the first few years he could perhaps be credited with canceling more programs than he started. 
For example, despite a clear-cut military requirement, McNamara canceled a nuclear-powered ramjet engine after $200 million had been spent. Edward Teller, father of the hydrogen bomb and catalyst of the Polaris program, was in flames. I believe it's the greatest mistake that we have made, Teller said, since the end of the World War II when we failed to develop the ICBM. Less than a year and a half after McNamara took the helm, Congress noticed the Air Force struggling to innovate. In a 1962 review of PBBS management systems, the Vigilant Committee staffer Herbert Roback sought to understand what had stifled new systems developments. He suspected that the PBBS led to a suppression of diversity and progress in systems development. Not only was it unusual for a staffer to directly question congressional witnesses, Roback challenged the now famous General Bernard Schriever, credited with the stunning success of the Atlas ICBM program. He asked Schriever whether or not cost-effectiveness analyses were suppressing new systems ideas. Schriever said, quote, I wouldn't say that it is suppressing new systems ideas, end quote. He proceeded to dodge the matter. Roback then sharpened his line of questioning, quote, Well, is it the case that there are new systems concepts that are being proposed but not acted upon? Do you consider that the emergence of new systems is proceeding at a satisfactory rate? End quote. General Bernard Schriever responded, quote, Well, from where I sit, I think we could move faster on certain of our programs. We have not really initiated a new system program for some time. End quote. For some time, can you give me a basis in years? Two years? Mr. Roback said. Schriever responded, quote, Well, it has been over a year. We have several under consideration now in the so-called definition phase. With respect to programs which are now under consideration, it has been that we are defining programs to a higher degree than we have in the past. Essentially, this has been the factor that has delayed the initiation of programs. End quote. The program definition phase, Schriever admitted, delayed program starts. Program definition generally includes a systems analysis where the cost and effectiveness of alternative paper studies were compared to determine which single best design made it to full-scale development. The process took a great deal of time and effort, resulting in decreased program starts. Schriever countered that the program definition resulted in more stable specifications, more realistic cost estimates, and ultimately a better program. He happily pointed to one new aircraft program authorized into development, the TFX. Schriever said of the TFX, quote, I might say I completely agree with the steps that are being taken with respect to it, end quote. While under pressure, Schriever concluded that the dearth of new program starts did not harm national security. He believed that better programs would emerge from this rigorous planning process. Less than a decade later, the deficiency of new programs had reached a crisis point. It became the highlight of a string of congressional hearings in December 1971, collectively called the Weapons Systems Acquisition Process. Stuart Symington, the first secretary of the Air Force and later a senator from Missouri, made a startling complaint. He said, quote, I have pictures which prove that the Soviets have developed 13 new fighters since 1954, and we have not developed one, end quote. At the time of the senator's shocking and factually incorrect statement, the TFX aircraft, which became designated the F-111, had not been deemed fully operational. It was belatedly introduced into operations in 1967, 
but a malfunctioning horizontal stabilizer postponed full operability when it took down three F-111 aircraft over Vietnam in 1968. Not until four years of defect correction had passed was the F-111A deemed fully operational. To its embarrassment, the Air Force adopted several Navy aircraft for its operations throughout the 1960s, including the A-1 Sky Raider, the A-7 Corsair II, the F-4 Phantom II, and the Marines' OV-10 Bronco. The Air Force also relied on Navy air-to-air missiles, including the AIM-7 Sparrow and the AIM-9 Sidewinder. The mainstay fighter in Vietnam was the Navy's F-4 Phantom II, which reached first flight in May 1958. Using dated aircraft modified from the Navy, U.S. airmen began to feel outmatched in equipment. Senator Symington reported his interaction with no fewer than 100 pilots in Vietnam who told him that they would prefer to fly in their opponent's plane, the maneuverable Soviet MiG-21. The problem of getting new hardware to the field did not limit itself to fighter aircraft. Admiral Hyman Rickover complained that, quote, In the past six years, the Soviets have built almost three times as many combatant ships as the United States. On a ship-to-ship basis, the Soviets have designed combatant ships that are faster, more modern, and more heavily armed than their U.S. counterparts, end quote. In terms of submarine production, Rickover claimed that the Soviets put out more than 580 modern submarines over a 26 period when the U.S. had only built 113. To round out the tri-service crisis, the Army's new main battle tank, the MBT-70, proved to be a continuing drama of technical challenges and cost growth. The program had been in development by 1971 for close to a decade. Projections at the time had each production unit costing four times more than its M60 predecessor, even after removing inflationary effects. Congress had canceled the MBT-70 earlier that month. Rand analysts may have been behind many of the management methods ushered by the PBBS, but its analysts were reporting the advantages of foreign processes in December 1971. Robert Perry wrote a paper in preparation for the congressional hearings entitled European and U.S. Aircraft Development Strategies. He found that without depending on U.S. technical effort, European aircraft firms nevertheless develop systems without any striking inferiorities. The only exception appeared to be in the complexity of installed electronics. France, for example, had developed a robust aircraft industry with an R&D budget only 10% of that of the United States. Robert Perry extolled the virtues of the French company Dassault, which averaged one prototype a year for nearly 20 years while keeping costs low. Lavishing praise, Perry wrote of Dassault's seemingly unlimited ability to create interesting options at low costs. Dassault's success in foreign sales to 13 countries, representing two-thirds of its revenues in 1971, perhaps proved the point. Perry explained how European success came from a different mode of aircraft development. Quote, Dassault uses very small design teams and production staffs. For the Mirage 1C bomber, which is a Mach 2.2 supersonic bomber with a range more than 1,000 miles, They use fewer than 85 engineers and draftsmen in the development phase. During the development of the Vertical Rise fighter, they use an average of 20 engineers and draftsmen and a high of 30." Not only were the design teams nimble, 
The French government project offices averaged just 10 people or less. The largest project office had 40 people. Compare that to a typical Air Force project office comprising between 150 and 200 people. Perry wrote, quote, Government program and project offices in support of fighter aircraft in France, England, and Sweden rarely contain more than 20 to 30 specialists. The ordinary government program office in the United States for comparable programs is staffed by at least five times as many specialists. The total number of engineers, draftsmen, and experimental shop personnel engaged in such European programs rarely exceeds 700. In the American experience, from two to ten times as many comparable specialists are employed, end quote. As a result, European aircraft were characterized by simpler design, fewer production changes, and lower indirect costs. Overall, Perry found program costs to be plainly lower in France and in Sweden than the United States, and probably at least as low in Great Britain. Despite his praise, Perry cautioned over-enthusiasm for a European system that also struggled to integrate complex electronics. But his testimony to the Congress pointed at two major differences between European and U.S. acquisition systems. First, quote, The ordinary European aircraft developer does not invest heavily in the sorts of elaborate program analysis that we do. They run computerized program tracking in France, Sweden, and Great Britain, but they ordinarily run them at a level of just 10% of ours. They simply don't invest in that sort of detailed analysis. End quote. While U.S. contractors were subjected to myriad management controls, their European counterparts remained largely unrestricted. In fact, much of the reduction in government staff was achieved through streamlining information reporting and approvals. Perry found that, for example, the French government requirements for the vertical lift aircraft totaled only 15 pages. In terms of continuous reporting during project execution, the Dassault Mirage 3G Variable Swing Wing Fighter Program, comparable to the F-111 in the United States, provided two reports a month, totaling a mere 10 pages, in addition to a short quarterly project summary. Second, Perry continued, quote, They don't make any substantial production commitment until they are sure that what they are going to put into production will perform. End quote. His paper elaborated how Europeans insisted on early proof testing of subsystems. They delayed production decisions until subsystems had been appropriately demonstrated. However, early austere testing and incremental changes neither led to inferior performance nor longer development times. Dassault took measured risks. For example, Dassault flew the vertical rise fighter prototype just nine months after approval to start the design, and the Mirage 3G prototype 16 months after design start. Prototypes made it into production in relatively short order due to employee incentives. Perry explained how, quote, rewards are not for innovation, for new ideas, but for simplicity and cost effectiveness in initial design, end quote. He said that Dassault does not tolerate engineers who propose expensive or hard-to-produce parts or who suggested costly improvements that may also require high-cost operating or maintenance procedures. Perhaps just as important as incentives is employment stability. The French achieved high retention rates 
by funding development independent of production. Pear explained that, quote, we pay for development as part of a system process, as a prelude to production. In France, it is paid for separately. It is separate contractually and in time. That is an important distinction, end quote. As a result, some designers at Dassault had been essentially doing the same thing for 20 years. By contrast, employment at U.S. contractors varied greatly due to the fits of starts and stops concerning major winner-take-all programs. Intermittent overfunding of major developments corresponds with a weak ability for U.S. contractors to build institutional knowledge and a culture of success. Aircraft systems development in the Soviet Union was similarly characterized by simplicity, incrementalism, and flexibility at the bottom. Arthur Alexander, also from RAND, told Congress how the Soviets relied on a minimum of reports. The Soviet pre-project document, which solicited designs from bureaus, does not appear to be a complicated document. Rather, it was primarily a list of goals and relative importances. For example, an all-weather interceptor was described in just three pages. Another difference was that the Soviets actively separated the stages of acquisition. One of the major differences, Alexander explained, of Soviet aircraft industry, quote, is that the research institutes, design bureaus, and manufacturing plants are autonomous and separated from each other. They are not linked together in a vertical structure, end quote. Even though all prototype designs must be approved by the ministry, lead designers had absolute authority and responsibility. The built-in flexibility at the bottom reportedly came from Joseph Stalin himself, who believed that, quote, the designer was the one individual who could be held responsible for success or failure, that the designer has the duty of protecting the integrity of his design from the demands of others. The designer must not be at everyone's beck and call. He has to protest irresponsible demands. It is hard to make a good machine work, and very easy to spoil it, and it is the designer who is responsible. End quote. Design chiefs were responsible for getting sound aircraft into production. To go along with their responsibility, successful designers received large rewards. On the flip side, Designers that did not perform adequately were relieved. Entire bureaus could be dissolved. Ironically, Alexander concluded, quote, Soviet aircraft production is similar to the way the American industry operated before the government began to participate heavily in project management. Soviet aircraft production is similar to what I would call profit-motivated capitalism, and that have taken the best and most pragmatic parts of our system of trying and experimenting before making decisions, end quote. Yet the capitalist features of Soviet aircraft production were limited in their dimensions. Alexander found that the aircraft ministry could not depend on delivery of critical inputs from other ministries, such as piece parts and raw materials. It was forced to create new organizations to produce the necessary inputs, even then, shortfalls were widespread. As just one example, the aircraft ministry prevented the use of titanium for all engine designs in 1958. The French Dassault Company, by contrast, was able to dependably rely on Western markets to fulfill most of their needs. It allowed Dassault to outsource most of the entire production process of its aircrafts. 
The one exception that could not be outsourced was final assembly, which the firm found critical for maintaining proficiency in design. Not only did advanced foreign countries reject the intensive management processes associated with PBBS, they successfully separated systems development from production. Whereas the Soviets did so organizationally, the Western Europeans did so contractually. And while the U.S. emphasis on concurrency led to faster innovation in theory, in reality, the smaller French industry had kept pace in most respects. The elephant in the room seemed to go completely ignored during the December 1971 hearings on the weapons acquisition process. Less than five months before, Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird and his deputy, David Packard of Hewlett-Packard fame, officially released the first of the 5000 series regulations. It sought to implement many of the processes that Perry and Alexander found so beneficial in Western Europe and the Soviet Union. For example, the 5000.1 decentralized responsibility to a single program manager and shielded him from detailed reporting demands of the Office of the Secretary of Defense, or OSD. Further, it limited OSD's role on deciding program progress to major acquisition milestones. These reforms first got started from a May 1969 memo. As Laird's chief management officer, Packard's first major change was to disengage OSD from most acquisition decisions. He returned the initiative to the services. They could once again formulate program concepts and determine alternatives, a critical function centralized by OSD systems analysts for the better part of the 1960s. Packard retained for OSD the power to set general policy, collect information, and evaluate major programs at three critical points in the acquisition lifecycle called program milestones. The three milestones that initiated OSD's involvement went as follows. Quote, First, when the sponsoring service desires to initiate contract definition, or equivalent effort. Second, when it is desired to go from contract definition to full-scale development. And third, when it is desired to transition from development to production for service deployment. End quote. To make decisions on behalf of the Secretary of Defense at each milestone review for major defense programs, Packard created the Defense Systems Acquisition Review Council, or DSARC, which today is called the Defense Acquisition Board, or DAB. It included representatives from DDRNE, ASD Installations and Logistics, ASD Systems Analysis, and ASD Comptroller. The DSARC advised the Secretary of Defense or his deputy on whether he should approve a program onto the next phase of acquisition life cycles. The most important document in the review was the development concept paper, DCP, later the decision coordinating paper. It outlined the program's requirements, technical solution or approach, and cost and schedule estimates. Packard said that, quote, The DCP is a concise statement describing the project, what is to be done, and how it is to be done. It covers the technical uncertainties, the operating requirements, and the alternatives. It requires the originating service to carefully prepare its case on a proposed new weapons program, end quote. While the DSARC process separated distinct phases of acquisition, the DCP reduced the amount of bureaucratic reporting. Packard issued a directive in October 1970 requesting recommendations to streamline acquisition. He testified to Congress that, quote, Of the 1,227 directives reviewed, 35% could be 
canceled outright or through consolidation, and 29 could be simplified through modification, end quote. Just as importantly, the services were invited back into the budget process. Under participatory management, Packer described how the services could once again propose how their monies should be spent. For fiscal year 1972 budget, it was, quote, the first time in over 10 years that the defense program submitted to the Congress was the one developed at the initiative of the military departments and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, rather than the initiative of the Secretary of Defense, end quote. Even though the services could plan their programs, only OSD could decide. OSD retained the power to approve major program decisions, which set the framework for service execution. During the McNamara years, OSD's policymaking apparatus encroached on defining not only what must be accomplished, but the specifications on how to accomplish it using a systems analysis. The milestone process, incorporating the DSARC and the DCP, returned program definition and execution to the services. Yet it preserved OSD's accountability to Congress. Only it could approve policies with respect to program requirements, initiation, and progress. John Foster, Director of Defense Research and Engineering and Chairman of the DSARC, provided Congress with the following interpretation. Quote, Decentralization, as we intend it, means that each DOD component or military department is responsible for identifying new defense systems deemed necessary to meet potential threats to our national security and for proposing the systems to the Secretary of Defense for his approval. Upon such approval, it becomes the responsibility of the DOD component to conduct the program within pre-established and mutually agreed upon limitations. End quote. Whereas McNamara's solution to program choice was a systems analysis, Packard relied on functional prototypes. Instead of interfering with service administration, prototyping improved systems acquisition by introducing early test articles that generate knowledge and reduce program risks. The focus then shifts from paper studies and mathematical analysis to bending metal and writing computer code. Packard told Congress how systematic prototyping efforts can alleviate two problems that had grown under the McNamara years, leading to excessive costs and unsatisfactory results. He explained, quote, One is the excessive reliance on paper studies and paper analysis. This difficulty has been evident in all stages of past programs, advanced development, full development, and production. The other problem is the concurrency between development and production, simply that development has not been sufficiently complete before production is started. We believe that adopting the prototyping approach on new programs will help minimize these two difficulties. The programs we are recommending for prototyping generally will not have the objective of producing a complete operational system. For example, the fighter aircraft prototype will primarily be used to demonstrate the capability of the airframe and the engine in actual aerodynamic performance, but it will not include all of the avionics, weapons, etc., which are necessary for full operational weapon systems." End quote. Alluding to Robert Perry and others' work, Packard stated that, quote, We have looked at how the French buy new aircraft. They do not do it by getting a big weapon system program going and using a great deal of paperwork and controls. They simply go to the contractor and say, if you can give us a model that will fly and do this, we will pay you so much money. End quote. To deal with the stop-and-go fashion of Defense U.S. programs, 
Packard even went so far as discussing fixed design team budgets and letting them operate with relative autonomy. For about $25 million a year, Packard believed that they would obtain from each prototype team two models about every three to four years. The design-to-cost approach reached similar ends, where program unit costs were fixed. In either case, Packard encouraged creative freedom to generate new solutions instead of pursuing preconceived ones. Quote, If these prototype programs are to be efficient, they must be managed with a minimum of constraints. They should be designed to meet performance goals, not detailed specifications. They should not require detailed confirmation of requirements nor careful consideration of all alternatives in advance because the very purpose of building prototypes is to use operational testing of hardware to confirm requirements and evaluate alternatives, end quote. In September 1971, Packard asked Congress for a supplemental appropriation to start a number of new prototypes, one of which was the lightweight fighter. Funds were appropriated within three months, and the Air Force solicited proposals for the lightweight fighter just one month later in January 1972. In February, five companies submitted proposals, and on April 13th, the Air Force selected General Dynamics and Northrop to design and build two prototypes each. For business in the Pentagon, the turnaround was lightning fast. It often took three years to coordinate a budget request through the PBBS, to Congress, and to have funds appropriated. It would often take another year or more for the government to solicit contracts, evaluate proposals, and send final documents out to the contractor. The lightweight fighter contracts accomplished a four- or five-year journey in just seven months. The official first flight of General Dynamics YF-16 took place on February 2, 1974, and for Northrop's YF-17, it was June 9, 1974. Over the next seven months, as many pilots as possible were found to test the YF-16s and the YF-17s. Although the prototypes never flew against one another, they were pitted against Soviet MiG-17s and MiG-21s acquired by the Air Force. Overall, the two YF-16 prototypes underwent 714 hours of testing during 330 flights, while the YF-17s underwent 345 hours of testing during 299 flights. On January 13, 1975, the Air Force announced that the YF-16 won the competition due to advantages in agility, in acceleration, in turn rate, and endurance. These factors applied principally in the transonic and supersonic regimes. This was indicative of the fact that the YF-16 has lower drag and was a cleaner design. The YF-16 achieved higher maneuverability at the expense of airframe stability, requiring a revolutionary fly-by-wire computer system to make instantaneous adjustments without the pilot's input. General Dynamics lead designer Harry Hilliker remarked on the contracting process that made the lightweight fighter competition successful. Quote, The contract for the lightweight fighter prototype was for a best effort. We did not have to deliver an airplane legally. Once we spent our $3 million, we could have piled all the parts on a flatbed trailer and said to Mr. Air Force, here's your airplane, end quote. The competition sought to achieve performance goals without pre-specifying detailed designs, leaving the contractors with near total decision rights to build the best product. Hilliker, called the father of the F-16, said that, quote, My point is that we were not working against a difficult but arbitrary schedule. 
The airplane was simply a technology demonstrator, end quote. DDR and E. Malcolm Curry told Congress that such a competition in fighter aircraft had not been done for over 20 years and resulted in virtually no increase in total cost of ownership. Robert Perry from Rand wrote in 1975 that, quote, In my judgment, the F-16 is the first American fighter in nearly 20 years that not only outperforms its designed contemporary in every respect, but if developed as now planned, probably will cost no more, end quote. Belgium, Denmark, Norway, and the Netherlands were so enthusiastic about the YF-16 at the Paris Air Show that they ordered a total of 348 aircraft in June 1975, more than two months before General Dynamics started work on the first full-scale development unit. While the YF-16 provided capabilities the Air Force needed to complement its more costly F-15 aircraft in a high-low mix, Northrop's YF-17 was not without attractive features. Navy airmen liked the safety of its twin engines for operations over water. Importantly, naval aviators liked the YF-17's ability to operate at very low speeds, improving the reliability of aircraft carrier landings. While the YF-16 fell into a spin on at least three occasions during tests, the YF-17 was virtually stall-proof. The two YF-17 prototypes could circle around each other at speeds as low as 37 miles per hour, with their noses faced upward, a move that looked like two Cobra snakes facing off. It suited the aircraft's nickname, the Cobra. Looking for a lightweight fighter to complement the F-14, the Navy received carrier-suitable redesigns of the YF-16 and the YF-17 a month before the Air Force selected its winner. By May 1975, the Navy selected a derivative of the YF-17, but this time with Northrop as the junior partner to McDonnell Douglas. Though the aircraft looked superficially similar to the YF-17, it received a new engine and was structurally different enough to earn a new designation, the F-18. Without another prototype, the F-18 went into full-scale development and first flew on November 18, 1978. When the F-18 got into dogfights with the Air Force's top-end F-15 fighter in the spring of 1981, an opportunity the Air Force denied the F-16. The F-18 won all four engagements due to its operability at low speeds, its ability to get behind an opponent, and surprisingly, its endurance. The lightweight fighter prototype competition was a stunning success, and seemed to prove Packard's management philosophy. It resulted in two of the finest weapon systems in the U.S. arsenal, the F-16 and the F-18, which due to their affordability became Air Force and Navy workhorses for decades to come. Other notable prototype competitions included the Advanced Attack Helicopter, which resulted in the Apache Helicopter, the Stoll Transport Program, and the AX Close Air Support Program, which resulted in the A-10. For the A-10, another Air Force workhorse that proved extremely robust and a tremendous value, the DSART did not approve production until after two years of testing. Robert Perry reported how test program participants expressed convictions that neither the F-16, the A-10, nor the UH-60 Blackhawk would have been selected had only paper designs been evaluated. Their merit became apparent only after prototype test data came in. An example of prototyping without competition came with the F-117 stealth aircraft. The F-117 prototype achieved a remarkable stealth airframe design, 
but leveraged numerous existing components, including the engine from the T-38A, flight controls from the F-16, landing gears from the A-10, and environmental systems from the C-130. The relative success of several aircraft from the 1970s was by no means secured by seemingly well-designed policies of Laird and Packard administration. The aircraft may well have never flown had the reforms not fortuitously aligned with doggedly antisocial behavior of a few men willing to contravene Air Force doctrine, including Chuck Myers, Pierre Spray, and perhaps most of all, John Boyd. The extreme irregularity with which the teen series aircraft were developed and the personal nature of the interventions required provides a glimpse into the systematic rigidities against non-consensual innovation in the Department of Defense and suggests the limitations of the reforms envisaged by Packard. The lightweight fighter concept may have started in 1960 as Captain John Boyd packed his bags to go study industrial engineering at Georgia Tech. At 33 years old, Boyd was already a famous Air Force pilot. While instructing tactics at Nellis Air Force Base, he offered a running bet that he could beat anyone in mock air combat within 40 seconds or he would pay them $40. Never having lost, he earned the nickname 42nd Boyd. He also recently finished an instruction guide called The Aerial Attack Study, which became the definitive encyclopedia of air-to-air combat. But it was in his time at Georgia Tech that John Boyd began developing a theory that would transform the evaluation of aircraft design. Within two years, Boyd discovered he could explain air-to-air combat in terms of energy relationships, in which the altitude is the potential energy to be traded for speed, kinetic energy, and vice versa. The concept, completed with Thomas Christie at Eglin Air Force Base, became known as Energy Maneuverability, or EM, theory. It seemed to have independently discovered, or perhaps copied, many principles already described by Edward Rutowski in 1954. Boyd and Christie, however, were the first to apply the ideas to military aircraft. EM theory quickly found acceptance in the Air Force. After receiving several awards for his contributions, Boyd was sent to the Pentagon in 1966 to help develop the new FX aircraft to help a new FX aircraft succeed where the F-111 had failed. His reaction to the FX in its early stages was typical of Boyd. Quote, I could fuck up and do better than this, he said. The FX initially copied many of the designs from the failed F-111. Boyd worked tirelessly to reduce the weight and complexity of the FX design. He nixed the swing-wing design and improved its maneuverability in accordance with EM theory. Yet this provided little space for complex electronics. Others in the Air Force pushed back on the basis that modern combat required powerful radar to see the enemy first and long-range missiles to destroy him before close air combat commenced. Such capabilities required a larger platform at the expense of agility. The FX project went into full-scale development without a prototype in 1969. Though Boyd had some success in defining the aircraft, eventually the F-15 Eagle, it was more than twice the weight that he desired. Still displeased with the design compromises made by responsible elements in the Air Force that resulted in a less agile plane, Boyd and a handful of like-minded pilots, analysts, and engineers pushed for a fighter weighing about 20,000 pounds. The core group included John Boyd, Pierre Spray, Harry Hilliker, 
Everest Riccioni, Thomas Christie, and Chuck Myers. Already in 1967, Boyd and Spray had been briefing leadership on a lightweight fighter, but were disengaged after getting no results from Air Force Systems Command, which already committed substantial funding to the F-15 and the F-111. Undeterred and without authorization, Spray sketched designs for that lightweight FXX aircraft in 1968. The next year, he wrote a paper on the FXX concept, which fell flat in the Air Force. Yet the dissident group slowly grew in numbers and influence. Engineer Harry Hilliker got on board shortly after encountering Boyd in an officer's club while Boyd was loudly disparaging his company's aircraft, the F-111. Hilliker remembered that the group was once called a mafia by people in the Air Force because they were viewed as an underground group that was challenging the establishment. Other sources have Colonel Riccioni coming up with the group's name playing on the post-World War II bomber mafia. In either case, the name of Boyd's group became the Fighter Mafia, and as the name suggested, the Fighter Mafia would have to throw out the rule book in order to get the lightweight fighter program off the ground. After Pierre Spray's FXX paper was rejected by the Air Force in 1969, he presented it to the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics in a meeting at McDonnell Douglas's St. Louis facility. It seemed to bear fruit when 125 McDonnell guys became interested in the lightweight fighter concept. Despite their obligation to the F-15, McDonnell Douglas engineers provided assistance to their competitor, General Dynamics. Most notably, they provided critical insights into the fly-by-wire system necessary to the YF-16 design. The lightweight fighter designs were helped further by Colonel Riccioni, who obtained funds for an innocuously named study. General Dynamics and Northrop understood the real objectives of the study were to pursue a lightweight fighter. Boyd and Spray contend that without it, the F-16 program would not have existed. Riccioni was a master promoter of the lightweight fighter concept, but rubbed some officials the wrong way. In December 1970, Riccioni got himself removed from the Pentagon after a heated argument on the lightweight fighter. While Riccioni's study kept the program breathing, the lightweight fighter was given new life the very next month. Kelly Johnson from Lockheed submitted an unsolicited proposal to prototype a low-cost aircraft based on the F-104. Three companies followed Lockheed with unsolicited proposals of their own, prompting John Foster to inform Packard of the situation. Packard responded with the instruction that two, at least, aircraft should be obtained. Only the price shall be firm. All other specifications shall be open. A plan for a fly-off testing will be required. Boyd wanted to influence the prototype competition to reflect his lightweight concept. However, he soon got word of an Air Force conspiracy to waste time by moving up proposals to the highest level before receiving ultimate rejection. In response, Boyd used a friend close to Packard to successfully go over the head of the air staff. In August 1971, Secretary of Defense Laird personally intervened by issuing a memorandum directing the Air Force to establish a lightweight fighter program. A couple weeks later, Packard brought General Kenneth Chapman before Congress to find additional funds specifically for the lightweight fighter competition. Even with substantial help from Packard, the fighter mafia's Harry Hilliker judged the F-16 would never have flown without buy-in from Air Force regulars, including General Chapman. Even after Packard and Lair's personal intervention generated extra funding to pursue the lightweight fighter, its progress proved to be in continual jeopardy. Several congressmen railed against the lightweight fighter concept. 
In a statement entitled, Lightweight Fighters No Panacea, Senator Howard Cannon viewed the lightweight fighter to be a low-capability threat to aircraft already in development. Packard assuaged Congress and the Air Force by repeatedly stating that the lightweight fighter competition was a technology demonstrator. He did not commit it to any production orders. Major General William Evans picked up on the line that the lightweight fighter program did not meet a defined requirement. As the YF-16 and the YF-17 were preparing for their first flights towards the end of 1973, the Air Force attempted to squash the program by underfunding it in the next budget submission. Both lightweight fighter management and general dynamics believed the program would be killed. Once again, fighter mafia proponents got the ear of incoming Secretary of Defense James Schlesinger. He sympathetically added $36 million to missionize the lightweight fighter program for eventual production in January 1974. The lightweight fighter program would have continued to be threatened by the Air Force's F-15 if not for two developments. First, the Nixon Doctrine provided a requirement for a low-cost aircraft to assist equipping foreign allies. In 1970, Northrop's inexpensive F-5 won the International Fighter Aircraft Competition, prompting Lockheed's unsolicited proposal that got the lightweight fighter competition underway. Later, when U.S. allies went looking for more fighters in 1974, it was clear that an outdated F-5 and a pricey F-15 did not provide attractive options. Lieutenant General John Burns claimed that the F-16 entered the Air Force not because of its combat effectiveness. In order to keep costs down and win the international competition, the Air Force had to join the purchase of it to bump up quantities. They were going to buy 350 So we had to buy 650, Burns said. Second, Schlesinger authorized increasing the number of Air Force fighter air wings by six on July 29, 1974. This came a year after cost growth had caused the Air Force to request a reduction in the number of authorized air wings by five, from 24 to 19. Schlesinger wrote that the force structure increase was approved specifically for the purpose of accepting lightweight fighter deliveries. With additional funding carved out in the budget that supported both the F-15 and the F-16 programs, Air Force resistance fell away. As General Robert Marsh reflected, quote, I do not believe it is fair to say that anybody in the United States Air Force in a senior position planned to inventory the F-16. I think it was thrust upon us, end quote. The obstacles faced by the fighter mafia are not unique to the Air Force. The obstacles are common to the administration of all large organizations. Formal processes in defense acquisition, however, exacerbated the problem. First, a lengthy requirements phase sought concept validation from dozens of offices across the military services. Second, the DSAR created a forum for building consensus at the OSD level. Finally, the PBBS process brings financial management and other layers of bureaucracy for funding to be made available. Weapon systems innovators were required to justify themselves to a crowd of people, each of them with some power to veto the whole project. The ability to innovate in the DoD requires permission from both competitor programs and from established experts. Otherwise, as the lightweight fighter story suggests, it takes a nearly impossible appeal to political powers. Henry Hilliker recalled that the fighter mafia facing institutional resistance happened due to two reasons. First, the fighter mafia threatened the viability of the F-15, a competitor program. In a program budget, the total cost of acquisition must be estimated up front. 
The authorization of the F-15's development also committed the Air Force to a large procurement that would tie up much of the tactical aircraft budget. For a once-in-a-generation plane, the fighter mafia had a fair shake in defining the F-15. They then wanted a whole new program, and if it went into production, there may not be enough funding for the F-15. The result might have been reduced F-15 quantities, leading to increased unit costs, possibly spiraling into cancellation. The F-15 program advocates then had legitimate interests in the lightweight fighter program because they all drew from the same limited source of funding. Even when adequate funds for both programs were provided, it did not erase the memory of subversion. Just two months after the Air Force selected McDonnell Douglas for full-scale development, fighter mafioso Chuck Myers wrote a critical memo of the F-15 requirements in a last-ditch effort to push the lightweight concept. In a resource-constrained environment, successful developments can have long-term implications on the forecasted life-cycle budgets of established programs. Competitor programs whose budgets have already been justified can then use the authorization as a counter to arguments of any threatening new development. Second, the fighter mafia moved against expert advice. They were perceived as being anti-technology. Post-war experts in air combat agreed, and not without good reason, that fighter aircraft needed a high top speed, advanced avionics, and long-range missiles. Despite the troubles encountered by the F-111, its all-weather train following radar proved highly capable. The fighter mafia took a very different view, arguing that the primary mission of air-to-air combat required agility. Though the YF-16 and YF-17 were state-of-the-art in their own rights, the lightweight fighter concept did not seek to over-engineer the planes with negative consequences to agility, reliability, and cost. Skeptics interpreted the fighter mafia to be anti-technology, particularly Pierre Spray who was called a true Luddite by General John Lowe, the lightweight fighter program manager during the critical stages. Though the slogan, make it simple, pervaded the fighter mafia thinking, Hilliker recalled it being an oversimplification. Hilliker said, quote, we didn't articulate ourselves well early on, end quote. If the fighter mafia wanted to shape the F-15 program, the lightweight fighter program, or any major program, it would have to influence the entire set of experts represented in the air staff, or, as it turned out, go over their heads. The pursuit of defense innovation requires the support of numerous officials from the commands, the service staffs, service headquarters, OSD, and even from the president and the congress. The involvement arises because prototype efforts continued to be as much a prelude to full-scale development as full-scale development was a prelude to production. Both the competitor and the expert can, in almost any circumstance, provide a plausible case that the new project either meets no military requirement or is duplicative with the requirements sought by an existing program. In both requirements and duplications, Program naysayers found especially easy targets with the lightweight F-16 and F-18. More than a year after Schlesinger authorized the lightweight fighter program to be missionized, the services still had no formal requirement for the F-16 or the F-18. The GAO believed that the F-16 and F-18 programs must be curtailed until requirements were detailed and agreed upon with Congress. When the Air Force got around to formalizing requirements, competitive meddling continued as the F-15 advocates laid claim to -to air-to-air superiority missions. They pushed the F-16 toward an air-to-ground role not envisioned by the fighter mafia, and in some ways corrupted its design. 
F-14 advocates in the Navy successfully pushed for even more substantial changes to the requirements of the F-18. For the F-18, the Navy wasn't the only hazard. In some ways, the institutional challenges faced by the F-16 pale in comparison to those faced by the F-18. The program faced continual cancellation by Congress in every year of the F-18's development. The Navy first caught the ire of congressmen when the Naval Air Systems Command, NAVAIR, blatantly disregarded their direction. Congress wanted the Navy to select a derivative of the Air Force's winner, still undecided at the time. In a September 1974 conference report, the House Committee on Appropriations said that, quote, Adaption of the selected Air Force air combat fighter to be capable of carrier operations is the prerequisite to use of the funds provided. End quote. The $20 million provided to the Navy by Congress was then fenced off for the contractor who won the Air Force competition. But Navy participants did not feel that they had a voice at the source selection board which determined the joint service aircraft. In November 1974, Deputy Secretary of Defense William Clement wrote a letter to the chairman of both the House and Senate Appropriations Committees. He requested them to make Navy funding available to pursue derivatives from either the YF-16 or the YF-17. Neither chairman objected, but that was before the Air Force selected its winner. Completed proposals were then received by the Navy in January 1975, the same day that the Air Force selected the YF-16. As the Navy evaluated designs, General Dynamics fully expected to win the Navy effort. They must have thought that the Navy was spending time evaluating among its three derivative proposals for the YF-16. But in March 1975, Clements wrote again to the Appropriations Committee chairman requesting $12 million to go towards derivative designs from both the Air Force competitors and $8 million to contract with the selected firm to refine its design and sustain its engineering efforts, whichever firm is selected. Both chairmen again wrote back with no objections. Perhaps House Appropriations Chairman George Mahone would have objected at the time had he known the details. In May 1975, the Navy selected the derivative of the YF-17, and Mahone quickly reversed direction. He seemed genuinely bewildered by the Navy's decision. Quote, this committee has supported the Air Force lightweight fighter prototype development program. The committee's objective has always been that this program would be develop a lightweight, low-cost, advanced technology fighter that can meet both the Navy and the Air Force requirements. While the lightweight fighter program appears to have developed prototypes to fulfill this objective, the Navy has disregarded congressional intent and is initiating development of an entirely different, larger, and more expensive aircraft. Since the Navy has proceeded in an entirely different direction, the committee recommends deletion of the funds requested. End quote. What is more curious about Chairman Mahone's turnaround is that he previously expressed doubt over the benefits of commonality. While discussing the AX close air support aircraft in 1971 hearings, Chairman said that, quote, We think commonality is good. We do not want to undertake to achieve something that cannot be realistically achieved. End quote. In 1975, however, Mahone pointed to the F-4 and the A-7 as joint service planes that benefited from large production runs provided by commonality. Yet those aircraft were designed by the Navy and stripped down for the Air Force. Removing weight from naval aircraft is easier than adding weight to handle the stress of catapult launches and arrested landings, to increase wing area for carrier operations, and to overcome numerous other matters, as was discovered by the F-111B, which the Navy had to back out of. 
Admiral William Hauser said that for carrier operations, quote, you have to add several thousands of pounds of structural weight so it becomes heavier. You also have to add a great deal of wing area and complicated devices that fold in and out of the wings to give it approach characteristics. And then it is too heavy for the same engine, end quote. Moreover, neither of the lightweight fighter competitors have ever built a naval aircraft, requiring them to team up with experienced partners. Realistic speculation that Congress would only fund a derivative aircraft of the Air Force winner drove the teaming arrangements for Navy designs. Northrop first approached Lingtempco Vought LTV to help on the YF-17, but LTV turned down the proposal because in the summer of 1974, it looked like the YF-16 would win the Air Force competition. LTV took an inferior offer from General Dynamics, pushing Northrop into a deal that made them the junior partner to McDonnell Douglas on the navalized YF-17. The teaming arrangement mattered greatly because both General Dynamics and Lingtempco Vought were based in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas, the home state of Chairman Mahone of the Appropriations Committee. And it was clear to all involved that a joint service aircraft ensured plenty of defense dollars for local jobs. While Mahone's congressional district was a couple of counties away from Fort Worth, perhaps affecting his opinion, junior member Dale Milford served the suburban area between Dallas and Fort Worth. Milford consequently railed loudest against the Navy's decision. Will Congress surrender its constitutional prerogatives by permitting the executive agency to act in clear defiance of the law? Milford calls the Navy's actions a ripoff due to the projected $2 billion cost savings by commonality. The projection was perhaps not made by the most independent of sources, General Dynamics and LTV of the YF-16. On May 9, 1975, LTV submitted a formal protest to the Navy's decision citing congressional language. Apparently, many in the Navy were unaware of the matter until after the protest. NAVAIR General Counsel Harvey Wilco exclaimed, Holy moly, we are in trouble. Indeed, they were. Within a couple weeks, Representative Milford brought the protest in a personal statement before the Senate to discuss the matter. The two issues Milford later identified were first, is the F-18 cost effective? And second, did the Navy break the law? With respect to the first, the Navy built a convincing case that all proposed F-16 derivatives required substantial modification. LTV's navalized 1600 model, for example, added 38% to the empty weight of the YF-16 and increased the wing and horizontal tail areas by 32 and 76% respectively. The 1600 model also proposed a different engine than the F-100 used in both the F-15 and the F-16, reducing commonality further. By contrast, the F-18 was only 23% heavier than the YF-17, 14% larger on wing area, and saw no changes to either the horizontal or vertical tail areas. But the required changes did not speak to the effectiveness of carrier operations. Admiral Kent Lee and the Source Selection Committee found that, unlike the LTV proposals, the F-18 substantially meets or betters all requirements. The YF-17's natural operability at low speeds put the F-18 in good position to win the Navy's effort. Appreciating the deficiencies of their design, LTV argued that they may have won had they also deviated from congressional requirements of commonality with the F-16. The claim did not hold water, considering LTV submitted three designs of 60, 15, and 1% commonality with the F-16. Of the least common 1602 model, Admiral Kent Lee said it was an entirely new airplane. 
The Navy made a convincing case that the F-18 was more cost-effective than any F-16 derivative. OSD's Independent Cost Office verified the F-16 program was cost-effective enough to proceed without the benefits of joint production orders. Yet all sides agreed that the Navy went against the language of the conference report, and the matter ultimately came down to legality. The Congressional Research Service wrote a legal opinion in September 1975 stating that, quote, matters resolved at the conference and passed by both houses of Congress must be absolutely determinative, end quote. Though their opinion went against the Navy, it was overruled by the General Accounting Office on October 1st. The GAO decided that the F-18's award was valid because the conference language is not legally binding. The GAO went further to say that the Navy award does not represent a violation of moral or ethical standards. The Navy's successful defiance was a rather unlikely outcome. It demonstrated to many the need for additional congressional involvement in requirements definitions of weapon systems. Senator Barry Goldwater's sentiments may have been typical of congressmen. Quote, I want to make it clear that I don't oppose the F-18 weapon system. I oppose the way they have gone about obtaining it. End quote. And like many congressmen, Goldwater still held hopes that joint service programs would generate substantial savings. He admitted that, quote, This may only be an impossible dream that some of us have, but we cannot continue to forever pay for these separate air forces. End quote. Non-consensual programs not only had to contend with institutional biases within the services, biases were also injected from OSD, the president, Congress, and the public, who all associated cost savings with economies of scale. But Edward Lutfak aptly pointed out, however, that, quote, Conflict is not like civilian business, and efficiency is the wrong goal to pursue. Efficiency in making a radar or refueling a ship, of course. But efficiency in making radars or refueling ships, no. For efficient economies of scale in purchasing radars leads to a single mass-produced radar that will be more easily countermeasured. And efficient refueling leads to few large fleet oilers that are more easily intercepted and destroyed by the enemy. Each of our majestic aircraft carrier task forces is now dangerously dependent on a single, very large, very efficient resupply shift. Conflict is different. End quote. Consolidating capabilities into single platforms not only creates combat risk, it also increases the risk of missing out on alternative technologies. Unlike a market economy, where various entrepreneurs independently pursued the option space, Diverse lines of development must be consciously planned and pursued by the military. Armin Alchin wrote, quote, In the private economy, other competing firms can duplicate or take different points of view about the nature of a desirable product. But there are not two departments of defense to provide competitive survival and selection of preferred products. End quote. The defense acquisition process itself had to act in lieu of markets through an endless cycle of testing alternative solutions to reimagined requirements. Yet, as the lightweight fighter case study has shown, intragovernmental competition was actively suppressed. For all the debate about the benefits of prototyping and competition, policymakers still concerned themselves with finding the single best system to fulfill the most possible missions. In the lightweight fighter case, as with others, the Navy and the Air Force were expected to produce one common aircraft. The lack of diversity was noticed by the Commission of Government Procurement. They noticed how the U.S. had only two fixed-wing and one helicopter design bureaus, 
whereas the Soviet Union had two helicopter, eight fixed-wing, and six engine design bureaus, with an additional six research institutes. In retrospect, the lightweight fighter concept proved a good value for first the Air Force and later the Navy. Yet as a brief impression of the institutional challenges faced by the lightweight fighter programs demonstrates, it was unlikely to have ever happened. It required foresight and determination, as well as the personal intervention from unusually sympathetic leaders at the Secretary of Defense level who went to bat for the beleaguered outsiders. Usually, career military insiders outlast particular administrations to get their way on major programs. In the lightweight fighter case, advocates successfully appealed to Laird as well as his replacement, Schlesinger. By then, it was too late to stop. Boyd's fighter mafia was uncommon in their willingness to criticize as well as their ability to appeal to the higher echelons of government. Frederick Scherer observed that, quote, There is a common belief at the intermediate levels in the military decision-making hierarchy that one should not rock the boat too vigorously through criticism at the start of a program, end quote. The common belief was not shared by men in the fighter mafia. The lightweight fighter program followed a pattern of military innovation overcoming resistance. Historian James Nagel found that in the early 20th century, quote, developments like the airplane and the submarine had to be engrafted onto military thought. They could not evolve, end quote. One seemingly mundane innovation at the time, which met heavy resistance, was an elevation system to keep naval guns steady while the ship rolled and pitched at sea. The technology was called continuous aim firing and undoubtedly revolutionized naval gunnery by increasing accuracy by more than 3,000%. In 1966, historian Elting Morrison put forward a generalized process that brought the Navy continuous aim firing at the turn of the 20th century. Morrison found that if the acceptance of technological innovation depends on social adaptability and, as he suggested, societies in the military services have trouble reforming themselves without outside direction, the extended implications present a discouraging thought. Morrison asked, what if no society can reform itself? Is the process of adaptation to change for example, too important to be left up to human beings. He invoked the Bessemer steel process as one instance where the broader industrial economy adapted slow to technological change. Two readily available examples could be added, the standard shipping container and the electric motor. Morrison recommended as a partial remedy for individuals to think of their mission more broadly and not wed themselves to particular technologies or doctrines. It implied the need for individuals to learn continuously and foster what Morrison called an emotionally adaptive society. The problem of adaptation and weapons acquisition led Robert Perry to question not only the systems approach, but the evolutionary approach to innovation pushed by Armin Alchin, Burton Klein, and others. If decision makers are wedded to particular technologies or doctrines, then the evolutionary approach can lead to dead ends while high-valued opportunities go unpursued. Robert Perry pointed to the, quote, misconstrued technological logic associated with evolution. For example, any sensible military engineer expected cruise missiles to precede ballistic missiles, and similarly would expect turboprop engines to precede the supposedly much more complex and less efficient turbojet engines. In the case of ballistic missiles, the error arose from a set of value judgments accepted uncritically by Air Force analysts. 
In the case of jet engines, the Americans seem to have overstayed the difficulty and underestimated the worth on every possible occasion. Why were new technologies being so badly misrepresented? Perry concluded that, quote, the ample seems plain enough, cultural resistance, end quote. Such resistance may lead to endless tinkering along safe and well-trodden lines, as seems to have been the case in the Navy bureaus and Army arsenals before World War II. Perry wrote, quote, The assumption that technology and doctrine alike will change in traditional evolutionary ways is comfortable, but is not necessarily true. And as some of the cases noted above, it may be an invitation to disaster, end quote. One issue with the evolutionary approach is knowing when to pursue or by how much to follow up on a new branch of technical demonstration. Here, the problem of institutional bias is particularly acute. In the case of ballistic missiles, analysts misjudged the option to be unlikely and eliminated it early on. Vannevar Bush testified on ballistic missiles, quote, I feel confident it will not be done for a long period of time to come, end quote. Prevailing attitudes may still reject change even when new options show promise. Swing-wing airframes and jet engines were eliminated even after technical feasibility was demonstrated because civil and military institutions could not be diverted from their preoccupation with marginal evolutionary improvements in the sorts of mechanisms that they were familiar with. In the evaluation of substantial military technologies, subjectivity cannot be avoided. When decision-makers think narrowly, the evolutionary approach may neglect new designs that branch off in unfamiliar patterns. The risk is particularly worrisome because, as Perry put it, success is in many respects a random event that does not conform to any standard pattern of behavior. Standard patterns of behavior are precisely what good administration intends to accomplish. But as administrative theorist Lyndall Yerwick described, the paradox of a leader is to, quote, protect from their wrath their originals, the innovators, the crazy people to whom order is anathema, because it is from this lunatic fringe that he is most likely to derive something original. End quote. Similarly, Elting Morrison wrote of inventors, quote, A surprising number turned out to be people with little formal education, who drank a good deal, who were careless with money, and who had trouble with wives or other women. This is also, I suppose, what is now called a good stereotype of the painter or poet. And it is quite probable that the inventor, who is also something of an engineer, is, like all great engineers, an artist. End quote. Theorists and practitioners, however, avoided the matter of the individualistic inventor with the argument that modern systems have become so complicated that they could only arise from teams of highly specialized personnel using rigorous management control systems. Morrison addressed the matter briefly, stating that, quote, We have pretty well left the point where the most interesting work can be done by single men working all alone, which is one way of saying that the virtuosity of the inventor has given way to a systematic research and development approach, end quote. Even theorists oriented towards decentralized processes, such as Alfred Whitehead and Joseph Schumpeter, believe that innovation processes in the 20th century required large teams with directed objectives. They sidelined almost entirely the motives and the sentiments of individuals that make the team work. Defense innovation processes did not stress the career path of employees and how they contribute to military solutions. Instead, it stressed the life cycle of military projects and the formulation of their requirements. 
1965, Rand analyst Thomas K. Glennon bucketed the technological development process into two categories, requirements pull and technology push. He described them akin to top-down and bottom-up. Quote, Technology push efforts are those efforts where the research personnel determine what research efforts will contribute to the needs as they, the researchers, perceive them. Requirements pull efforts are those where the needs are perceived by those external to the research efforts, and the research is initiated by planners and operationally oriented organizations. If the decisions are made at the top of the organization, we have a clear requirements pull effort. If they are made at the bottom, by the individual researcher, they are technology push. Utilizing the framework, Robert Perry rejected the predominating systems approach because it was entirely requirements pull. He also rejected the evolutionary approach for the opposite reason, that it was entirely technology push. The flaw in these viewpoints, Perry wrote in 1967, quote, is that they tend to ignore the reactive influence of innovative technology on requirements and of requirements on the handling of innovation, end quote. Perry advocated what at first appears to be a different matter, a three-step decision process. In the three-step process, feedback is provided to requirements and cost parameters and generates iterative loops. Despite Perry's appreciation for interaction between requirements and technology, his three-step process became associated with the linear model of innovation. In the linear model, a program matures in sequential steps, such as from scientific knowledge to product engineering to customer diffusion. Nonlinear models of technology transition emphasize the back-and-forth process of communication. Engineers generate questions for scientists to answer as much as scientists generate knowledge for engineers to apply. Similarly, customers provide guidance to technologists as much as technologists provide new option spaces for customers. Performing such interactions only three times in a linear process does not generate the required communication for success. The linear approach to development may be characterized by Winston Royce's 1970 classic, Managing the Development of Large Software Systems. In it, he outlined a linear path from systems requirements to coding, testing, and operations. The model later became known as the waterfall process of software development. It shared a lot in common with the steps involved in intensive planning methods such as PERT or earned value management. What is often forgotten, however, is that in the same paper, Royce understood that successful developments had to iterate. Quote, I believe in this linear concept, but the implementation described above is risky and invites failure. End quote. Royce recommended doing it twice or changes in requirements could create up to 100% overrun in cost or schedule or both. A pilot model should address the most critical requirements which may generate important feedback and buy-in from the customer early on. The delivering of incremental capabilities became the basis of the iterative, spiral, and agile methodologies of software development. Perhaps an idea once popularized sheds the underlying complexity to its truth, only to be rediscovered by successive generations using the language and concepts of their own time. Though Robert Perry and Winston Royce could perhaps be pointed to exemplars of the linear model, they certainly thought in terms of nonlinear implementation. There are two general circumstances necessitating nonlinear processes. First, when critical information is provided after product launch. And second, when a project's mission is to create new options and new requirements. 
Nonlinear approaches to technology development can be loosely described as communication between innovators and users. Early feedback and advocacy from users is central to product success. Elements of nonlinearity include flexibility, a willingness to take risks, open communication without regard to hierarchy, a sense of responsibility that replaces unquestioned authority, and a commitment to success that goes beyond functional roles. The three-step decision-making process was adopted by David Packard in the 5000 series. It continued to guide acquisition policy 50 years later. The top award in acquisition excellence is attached to David Packard's name. Yet his vaunted connection with acquisition reform is curious, considering he largely rebranded McNamara's existing policies. DoD Instruction 32000.6, dated June 1962, defined the same three key decision points that later became program milestones. Similarly, the development concept paper of 20 pages or less was initiated by McNamara in 1967 to streamline reporting. What Packard seemed to accomplish was a short-lived emphasis on systems prototypes rather than paper studies. Yet the characterization is not totally accurate, as McNamara updated his guidance to a building block approach in advanced technology development, proving out components and subsystems. It was the bridge to full-scale development where McNamara suffered. The only real change Packard and his boss Laird introduced was a return to providing budget ceilings for the services who then formulated programs which OSD would approve. As Clark Murdoch observed in 1974, quote, At the level of general defense policymaking, changes initiated by the new administration represents a return to the practices of the 1950s. In the areas of weapons innovation and acquisition, however, despite rhetoric to the contrary, Laird's innovation represented, for the most part, a renewed commitment to the trends begun by McNamara. Laird's fly-before-you-buy systems development approach, despite his efforts to differentiate it publicly from the practices under McNamara, contained many similar features, end quote. Even Murdoch's description may have been charitable. Laird did not return to the general policies of the 1950s, which were dominated by organizational budgets and strong in-house technical staffs. Instead, Lair continued to operate under McNamara's overall management framework, the planning, programming, budgeting system. The realities point to more, rather than less, centralizing tendencies, a congressional report surmised in 1970. The PBBS has been a consistent force for centralization by locking in program production plans at the start of development and, more importantly, suppressing competitors. Consider the daunting task to start a program, whether initiated in the services or OSD. Decisions made through the separate DSARC acquisition processes do not authorize funding. To initiate a program, it first is necessary for the Secretary of Defense or his deputy to first line up funding through the PBBS, which then becomes the basis of the President's budget to be approved by Congress. Any program decision made through the DSARC had to be anticipated 29 months ahead of time in the PBBS for funding to be available when the project is needed. Before all that occurs, the program concept must be vetted by numerous layers of bureaucracy in the requirements process. In all, it may take five to eight years for funding to be released for an approved requirement. Any degree of decentralization achieved by Laird and Packard quickly dissipated. In 1972, the Commission on Government Procurement claimed that decentralized management to be a serious flaw. A year later, Comptroller Elmer Stotts agreed that the Secretary of Defense need to 
require more comprehensive and objective analyses of emissions and weapons requirements. In 1976, OMB Circular A109 established new acquisition rules for the executive branch, seeking central authorization to create concepts. In January 1977, Secretary of Defense Harold Brown implemented OMB Circular A109 by adding a milestone zero, which sought approval for whether or not a mission, in fact, existed. Any exploration of alternative technologies or requirements would first have to be tied to a mission needs statement approved through a DSARC process. Milestone Zero proved a cumbersome process and was canceled five years later, but complex interactions between acquisition and budgeting cycles continued to create forces towards top-down or requirements-pull approaches. Technology push concepts and iterative feedback from requirements remained illegitimate in defense policy. Thanks for listening to this introduction to an acquisition talk series called Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to Stay tuned as new episodes are released. For more information, or if you'd like to provide feedback to me, please visit acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again.